the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I come to and I'm like, what is, like, I'm still out of it because I don't know where this pain came from and I still don't understand what situation I'm in. And both of these men have us, my boyfriend and I, pushed up against the wall and he had his arm on my chest and a gun in my face and then the other guy had my boyfriend with his arm on his chest and a gun in his face. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And we're sitting far away because, you know, we tried to record an episode together last week and it was such a shit show. I think it went pretty well, though. I think it sounded good. It was a shit show. It was? I thought it was great. It just took us forever. And we're so streamlined when we do these uh, recordings through Zencast or Zoom, whatever it is. Yes, but we want you We want you to think that we're all in a room together, though. This is the theater of the mind. Yeah, we're going to stop telling you. We are going to stop telling you. You won't know when we're together or when we're separate or, or we're in exotic locations. You will have no idea. You know what? I will. Maybe I will stop saying where we physically are. I only mm-hmm. did that because of the beginning of COVID. And it was COVID. I was, I was so it, sad. It was we didn't want to be yeah. judged. We didn't want people to think we were together and like <laughs> spreading. That's, that, that's exactly, you're exactly disease. right, Lex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all in our own like dungeons oh, by ourselves. I haven't seen another human in six <laughs> months. Just to let you know, it's sad in here. So right. um, should we just jump right into the day? Let's so. jump right into the day. So there's today, a lot of good days. There's a lot of good days. So today is October 27th. I don't know where to start because cranky coworkers day. Wow. Oh. Wow. I've only got one cranky coworker, and he's <laughs> he's <laughs> sitting right here. He's uh, <laughs> he's the great pumpkin of he's my life. He's the great pumpkin over there. I yeah. only have one cranky coworker too, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and, and she's sitting next it's to you. Billy, <laughs> Billy, Billy the curmudgeon Jensen. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's also American Beer Day. Great. All go right. Get your, go get yourself a domestic beer, you know? Yes. Mm. I, it's Boxer Shorts Day. Oh. It's National Potato Day. Who doesn't love a potato? I love a fry. Oh, wait. What's your favorite way to make a potato? Me? Yeah. French fried and then mashed with gravy on it. I like a twice baked potato. Those are good. Mm, I don't like a baked potato. I love I love every type of a potato, but a fried, a French fry, there's nothing better in life. So you put a potato, a mashed potato with like a bite of stuffing on it and like a bite of like Ooh. corn and then like maybe a piece of turkey on it all in one bite. Ooh, with gravy, dipped in gravy, salt, ooh, butter. Oh, yes. I yes, can't. Yes. Uh, Thanksgiving's right on the corner, friends. Yes. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> Alexis is completely skipping over Halloween. Salivating. Straight yeah, past. who needs it? It's Sorry. also Sylvia Plath Day. Oh. oh. Time to get romantic. I would like to read a little bit of Sylvia Plath because this is like one of my favorite lines from her. She said, out of the ash, I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. They oh. always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard. I'm through. Whoa. Here for this. Here for yes. this poem. Yes. So go, go read some Sylvia Plath be. today. Yeah. Go read some Sylvia Plath, drink a Budweiser, um, and complain about your coworker. It's a nice collective of days. No, you're Certainly. supposed to celebrate your cranky coworker. I thought that's the whole point. Oh. Well, and where's my gift, <laughs> Billy? 
I Where's my gift? gift? I have your. I have multiple gifts for you. Don't worry about it. Thank All you. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. If you're listening to this podcast, or if you're a true crime fan in general, then you're likely well aware that our country has been plagued with an opioid epidemic that has resulted in almost a million deaths since 1999. Overdoses cause a great deal of these deaths, but that's not the only dangerous implication of illicit drug addiction. On today's episode, we're going to guide you through a harrowing experience told by a first degree who possesses all the candidness and candor in the world, and she survived her addiction and all the dangers associated with it, and lived to tell the tale. Today's case takes us back to early November of 2013. Songs topping the charts were Royals by Lord, Blurred Lines by Pharrell Williams, Roar by Katy Perry, and Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. What a classic. Great Expectations and Thor were playing in theaters, and other happenings included Indiana and Hawaii becoming the 15th and 16th states to pass laws allowing same-sex marriages. And the setting for today's case is Knoxville, Tennessee, which has been known as the Marble City due to the number of quarries in the area. It's also the largest city in the United States with a silent first letter. And Knoxville, like most cities in the U.S., has seen the effects of America's opioid epidemic experienced by its residents. And our first degree for today is named Jesse, but the others in the story will be called by pseudonyms. Jesse was born and raised in Knoxville. Knoxville is very overrun right now, and especially the town that I came from, which is about 30 minutes south, like going towards Chattanooga and Atlanta. And it was like once everybody graduated high school and like Oxycontin became big and then opiates really began to take over the town because it is, I would say half of it is in poverty. Um, There's a very extreme difference on the socioeconomic level. There is a very affluent part of the small town, and then the rest is, like, impoverished. Jessie had a normal childhood growing up in Knoxville, and she describes it as being sheltered. We're going to set the stage for where our story begins today. Jessie had already graduated high school, and she'd been dating her boyfriend, Brad, for about a year. This is how sheltered I was as a child. Like, I grew up in, you know, a very conservative area, a very red state. And I, like, obviously, you always hear drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And I knew that drugs were bad. I had a lot of mental health issues. And after graduating high school, I started hanging out with some people from high school that I hadn't talked to in a while. And they had some stuff crushed up on the table. And I thought it was Coke cocaine at first. And I was like, nah, I don't really like uppers. And they're like, no, this isn't coke. Just try it. It's this scenario that teachers talk about in health class, you know, being at a party and the peer pressure from your friends to try drugs for the first time. And these things do actually happen. And it's usually pretty casual. So when Jesse was offered, she accepted. It's what kids do. They experiment and she tried it. I always tell everybody, I was addicted at that point, the very first time. My body and my brain wasn't physically addicted, but I, myself, my human body, whatever you want to say, my soul, 
because it made me feel the way I always wanted to feel. I wanted to be confident. I didn't want to care what other people thought of me. I didn't want to be self-conscious. I didn't want to hate myself anymore. And it gave me all of those feelings, and I loved it. And people who struggle with mental health self-medicate. And when you consider not only the opioid epidemic in this country, but also the mental health crisis, it's become a recipe for disaster. Close to 50,000 people die from opioid overdoses in America each year. That's more than three times the number of people who die from homicide. Right. And these numbers keep going up, despite the fact that according to the American Medical Association's 2021 report, physicians and other healthcare professionals have reduced opioid prescribing in every state for 10 consecutive years. And those prescriptions have gone from 257.9 million in 2011, down to 143.4 million in 2021. And obviously this is relevant because while Jesse's addiction didn't begin with a prescription for opioids, many addictions do. But despite these reductions in opioid prescribing, there have not been reductions in drug-related mortality. And that's because more and more street drugs are being laced with fentanyl. But let's get back to Jessie. Like she said, after trying heroin for the first time while she was hanging out with her friends, she fell in love with the way that the drug made her feel. She self-medicated more and more frequently, and her recreational use transformed into a full-blown addiction. It just slowly began to, well, it's an after-work thing. Once I got off work, I would do some and feel great. You know, it was party fun time. But then it got to the point where I needed to do some before work and after work. And then before work, at lunchtime and after. And then it got to the point where I couldn't get up and function in the day without having it because I would be dope sick, as they call it. The notion of being dope sick or entering into a state of withdrawal is a real implication of heroin addiction. And it's also a real driving force of this story. It's that utter misery, that other desperation of withdrawal, which makes heroin so highly addictive, and why people are so desperate to fuel their addictions when withdrawal approaches. And it was something Jesse underestimated. All I could ever get anybody to tell me about being quote-unquote dope sick was it's like the flu. And if it's like the flu, well, okay, I can live through that. And so I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into, and I didn't know how much of a flame that I was playing with when I was stroking this match. So I was self-medicating, yes, and I just thought, uh, if it's going to be the flu, well, hell, I can deal with that. But here's the thing. It's far worse than the flu. Entering a state of withdrawal is incapacitating, and for some who are addicted, can lead to acts of desperation to avoid its wrath. Anything to make it stop. The worst part, like I could handle the stomach upset. It is you get restless legs. They are hurting and your muscles are hurting so bad. You feel like you need to stretch them out. And it is just ungodly, not pain, but just annoyance and comfortable and irritating. And your arms, you're trying to stretch them out. But then because those dopamine levels have been depleted and you don't have any built up, on top of that, then you start crying and you literally feel hopeless, like the world is ending and it, you would you, you want to die because you're hopeless. You cannot stop puking and shitting your brains out. You cannot sleep. You cannot eat. It's just 
torture. I would not wish dope sickness on my worst enemy. Jesse paints a pretty descriptive picture, which helps us understand why people addicted to opioids are desperate to avoid reaching a state of withdrawal for obvious reasons. And this brings us to the crux of our story, November of 2013. So I remember it was early November. It was right after Halloween. And I'm a huge football fan. So is my boyfriend. We had went to this bar and watched football all day. We had had plenty of stuff, but we ran out that day. Jesse and her boyfriend, Brad, ran out of drugs. So they have to get creative as to how they're going to solve this problem because the clock was ticking. We knew that we were out of drugs. We knew that we didn't have any money. And at this point, like, my family's not going to give me money and my boyfriend's family's not going to give him money. I was like, no, we have to effing figure something out because I cannot be sick. I cannot do it. And so we went up to Walmart and we were literally like at a desperation point walking around Walmart, like trying to come up with a scheme or some way to get some money or get, get something because we were going to be sick. Okay, so why did Jesse and Brad go to Walmart, might you ask? Whenever we needed to steal something, and the, the, the hustle back then was you could steal stuff from Walmart and then literally either turn around and go back into the same Walmart or go to a different Walmart and get a gift card because there was a local store in Knoxville that bought gift cards at more than 50 cents on the dollar, like Walmart and Target was 75 cents on the dollar. So it was just steal, return it, take the gift card, sell it, and then you have money to go buy all the drugs that you need. Okay, they had a plan, an illegal plan, but a plan nonetheless. But this plan would never come to fruition due to a chance encounter at the store. All of a sudden... A friend of my boyfriend, Betty, came up and started talking to us. And I I knew Betty and we had seen her before. I knew who she was, but I didn't know her as like she was my best friend and we could hang out all the time. But she did know my boyfriend and they were friends. So Jesse and Brad run into Betty and they're catching up briefly prior to executing the gift card heist at Walmart. We just started having small talk. And then all of a sudden, like, she seemed fine. She seemed totally fine. We were just talking, and she started crying and, like, I mean, ugly crying, sobbing and shaking uncontrollably. And I had never really had a conversation with this girl. So it's kind of, like, off-putting at first. Anytime you see somebody that's visibly upset like that. It's kind of off-putting, but if you have any sort of empathy, you will feel bad for them. Betty's crying seemed out of the blue. And then she told Jesse and Brad why she was so upset. She was scared. She starts crying and shaking uncontrollably, and she says that her boyfriend is out of town, and there are these people that are coming to her house every night trying to break in. She's terrified. They're banging on the windows, trying to open the door. And then she'll receive text messages from 
random unknown number saying they're going to get her and I hope you're scared. And at that point, I was very, I was visibly like freaked out and I could feel if I put myself in her shoes, like I would be fucking terrified too. And I would not want to go home. Okay. For context here, Betty's boyfriend was a drug dealer. So the implication here is that people are trying to break in and rob this place, presumably to steal drugs and to steal money. Betty ultimately invites Jesse and Brad to come over and stay with her. So she's not alone. And remember, Betty had known Brad from before. They were friends. So it didn't seem that strange. But a brain that was not on the cusp of withdrawal might be thinking something like, no, this sounds really dangerous. Why would we put ourselves in the crosshairs of home invaders? But that's obviously not what Jesse and Brad were thinking. They were thinking, of course, of drugs. Then she literally pulls out like five grand in cash out of her bra and at first asked my boyfriend if he wanted to stay with her, like to protect her and keep watch for the burglars. And he was like, well, yeah, but I'm not going to come without Jesse. And you can tell when somebody's irritated and annoyed, but tries to hide it. So I could tell she was like, didn't want me to come, but she was like, okay, like, yeah, sure. Of course. Red flag number one right there. I was thinking she just wanted to maybe like have sex with him or something. I was just like, well, that's weird. She's like, if you come stay with me, I will buy you guys, you know, whatever you need meaning drug-wise, you know, food, anything. And I was like, hell yeah, like, let's let's do it. We're not going to be sick now. And it felt like for once God had smiled on us and sent us something that we didn't have to do anything illegal. We just had to go sit at a girl's house and watch out for burglars. So hell yeah, let's do it. Red flag one. Betty was trying to get Brad to leave Jesse and go alone with her. But we have to observe what's going on here. Jesse is ignoring her instincts and the red flags of danger in the situation because all that matters is avoiding these withdrawals. That's the thing is when you're a physical addiction, the front part of your brain shuts down, which has like the reasoning and logic part. And you're really just, you don't kind of step back and see that, that was really dangerous, even if a burglar was to break in. Yeah, we didn't think of that at all because we were just like, well, if they do break in, there's three of us. And I mean, what are they going to do? And, you know, we just really didn't want to be sick and really didn't care about the danger of the situation. Betty had money, drugs, and a place to party. So off they went and they couldn't get there soon enough. Betty told them to meet her there in an hour. My boyfriend and I just sitting in our car, like counting down the minutes. And, you know, it's like a watch pot never boils. It felt like just waiting that time to go because we knew there was going to be drugs there. I mean, we weren't sick at that point, but we weren't feeling good. Jesse and Brad get to the home of where Betty lived with her boyfriend. And immediately, Jesse noticed something. One thing that I thought was weird was there were cameras everywhere. This was in 2013. So, like, this was before, like, Ring or Simply Safe. There were cameras inside and not everywhere inside, just trained to one hallway on one door in that hallway, which I thought was 
odd, but at this point I was just like, whatever. I mean, free drugs, free food, and a cool place to stay. But I did ask her. I remember asking her, like, why is it there just one camera inside on just that door? And she said, well, that's my boyfriend's office, and he's very private. And I was just like, okay. Since the subject of Betty's boyfriend has come up a few times, here's what Jesse knew about this guy at the time. I knew he sold Coke at that point. I knew that. But I just thought, you know, he was maybe like a middleman. I thought he was somebody that would get some from the main guy and sell it. So I didn't know at that point how important and who he was. Okay, so who was this guy? Well, apparently, he was the biggest Coke dealer in Knoxville. But again, none of this mattered, even if Jesse had known that this guy was the biggest Coke dealer in the area, because they only had one thing on their minds. The first night was great. We partied all night long. Obviously, we we got high and drunk. And the camera, like the monitors to see what's on the grid, is in their bedroom. So most of the night, like, we would go down to the kitchen and party and hang out there. But most of the night was spent sitting in front of the cameras. And then as things started to quiet down and we went up to her room, she started being really sexual and, like, trying to get us to have a threesome. Jesse continues. She had just gotten her boobs done and so like pulled up her shirt and was like, look how pretty they are because she knows that I want mine done too someday. And was just like, feel them, look how pretty they are, you know, and just started to be really seductive, which she's beautiful. She's a beautiful girl. For some reason, we just didn't feel comfortable doing that and not like... We, would, we wouldn't ever do that because we would. Something was holding us back and we, we just weren't down for it. That point is the first time that I thought, what is going on? Like, why, why is she doing this? This is actually the first moment that Jesse's instincts kick in. And she picks up on the fact that there's some weird energy swirling around. But it wasn't alarming or overt enough for the party to end. It was a red flag. Luckily, Betty was relatively cool about this rejection. It was just an awkward moment that we both turned down this girl that wanted to have a threesome with us. We kind of start setting down and like winding down for the night. So both my boyfriend and her and I were sitting in front of the monitors just watching. And I was laying in my boyfriend's lap falling asleep and they had been doing cocaine And so they were a little bit more energetic than I was. (laughs) And then all of a sudden she jumps up and yells like, look, oh my God, look, there it is. I saw something. I saw it. Look, there they are. They're there. Oh my God. Like freaking out. Brad and Betty saw movement on the camera monitors. Was it these burglars that Betty had been worried about? Think of girls in a horror movie that are freaking out that saw the killer outside. Like, oh my God, like we're going to die. There they are. Look. Oh my God, oh my God. And I jumped up and looked and there was like some movement at the very bottom right corner of the screen. By this point, Betty is losing it. 
she like gets into a ball almost in the fetal position on the floor and is hyperventilating. You know, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill all of us. And so my boyfriend looks out the window and of course we've got all these drugs in our system. What do you think that you would do under these circumstances? Our judgment center is not really working the grandest in the world. And he was like, we're just going to go out there. Fuck it. I, we're going to find him. And I was like, no, please don't. I don't want to go out there, please. So he grabbed a baseball bat, a metal baseball bat. So the three of them go outside to try to get a better look at whatever they saw move on the camera monitor. It sounds dangerous and terrifying and against the laws of most tactical training or horror movie experience of any kind. But off they went. They walked the perimeter of the house and they didn't see anything. Then all of a sudden, Betty's phone pings with a text message. All of a sudden, the text message start of, we're going to fucking find you, bitch. We're going to kill you. We saw you. You have your friends with you. We're going to kill them, too. Just crazy stuff. But it was like, it was timed perfectly for as we start to walk to the woods, these text messages start happening. So I really felt at that point, because if she was making this up, like how could she be sending text messages to herself? So I really felt that that like, okay, we're being watched. Like this is serious. All right. This is beyond horror movie. This is a true nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would be just chill walking around outside if people are like sending this girl text messages saying, we're going to get you, we're going to kill you. I mean, no. I don't, I would have been home. I mean, I can't relate to so much of this in so many ways. Cause I'm such a baby with this stuff. Oh my God. I would have freaked out at the first sign of anything being like a little bit scary. And I would have booked it the fuck out of there so fast. I mean, it goes down to, like, you get a text message saying, I can find you. We're going to kill you. We saw you. You have your friends with you. So now that's putting somebody in that place where they've already seen stuff in the front of the house or some people moving around. Now somebody says you have your friends with you. That means that somebody's watching them. Ugh, so it gets it's even, worst nightmare. Yeah. Worst nightmare. Dude, it's like this is crazier than many movies that I've ever seen. Like a scary yeah. movie. It's terrifying. Seriously. So now this is really the turning point in the story. So things have gone from fun to weird to a little bit scary to terrifying. And now they get even worse. At this point is like when reality set in and I was like, okay, this is real. Oh, there are people watching us and they're out here somewhere and they're really trying to get by extension, us too, since we are there. Despite the terrifying implications of what had gone on so far, the need to get high can be more potent than self-preservation, and that's what was going on here. We go back to her house, and everything is fine for the rest of the night. I mean, after that, we were all, like, you know, adrenaline rushing, so we were like, of course we've got to, you know, do some more drugs. So we... Partied a little more, got a little more drunk, and then just basically crashed and had a great night. And not, like nothing else happened um, involving the robbers. It was like my boyfriend scared them away with his metal baseball bat.
Another morning rolled around. The next day, she had to go, like, re-up on the opiates for us uh, because she had only gotten enough for, like, that night. So she asked if we could stay again, which really she was just asking my boyfriend, and he was like, yeah, if we can both stay, which, again, you know, she tried again for it to just be him by himself. She really didn't want me to stay, though, like really didn't. And this time she was making it more clear. This is a pretty bold play and weird. She eventually gave in because she had no other choice. Like, if she was going to do this, she needed us. So she gave in. And even though I was really put off by that, the other end of the spectrum, my logical reasons, and there was cash and food and money and drugs and everything. Jesse would figure out why Betty wanted to be alone with Brad, but we're not shedding light on that until a little bit later. So Betty, Jesse, and Brad go to get drugs and food before getting back to the house. So where are things at this point? What is the vibe like? We were all still, you know, talking, laughing, having a good time. And we get back to her house and after we eat. And then she began to start acting very strange. She began to start to kind of like move, like twitch around, like, you know, fiddling your fingers or like tapping your fingers or biting her nails and just seemed really like nervous and kind of hypervigilant because she kept like looking around everywhere and everything. And then she would look at her phone and she would fidget and she would stand up and go walk around and then come back and sit down or go walk up her stairs and walk back down. So weird. So what was up? So here's the thing. And here's the confusing thing. If you've been doing a bunch of drugs, it's probably very hard to know if someone is being paranoid because they're being sketchy or if someone's being paranoid because they're on tons of drugs or if the person only seems paranoid because you're on tons of drugs and you're paranoid. So what was the actual case at this point? Yeah, but let's be clear. Lots of shady things have occurred up to this point. And a looming question has been clear to us since the beginning. Why is this girl Betty spending her money to buy Jesse and Brad drugs and food? There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? She tried to play it off like she had done too much coke. She was like, oh, I just, I've done too much, you know. But for some reason, I just had this feeling that wasn't it. So what was it then? All of a sudden, she just jumps up around seven-ish. She jumps up and is like, I need to go cook dinner. I was like, what? Because we had gotten takeout. But she was like, no, I need to go cook dinner. I knew something was wrong at that point. Her whole demeanor changed. What is going on? Because there is something wrong. And my boyfriend is noticing it too. And he's like looking at me like, we're going to probably like have to leave. (laughs) Betty is in the kitchen, quote unquote, cooking dinner. And finally, Jesse and Brad are starting to get really freaked out by this girl and what was really going on. So what happened next? Where she was is hidden by the wall 
of the couch that my boyfriend and I were sitting up against. Well, within five minutes of her going in there, all of a sudden there's just bang, 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 bang on the door, like a cop knock, how they bang. Uh-oh, this, this time wasn't just movement on a camera monitor. This wasn't an angry, threatening text message. This was fierce knocking on the front door of this house, made by a person in the flesh who was standing right outside. This is when I freaked out because I knew, I, I knew, I was like, okay, we're fucked. <laughs> what was Betty doing? She immediately, like, she kind of slowly walked out and just stood there staring at us and just was pale, white as a ghost. And she was trying to say, like, oh, my God, it's them. They're here. But why would robbers knock on the door? These guys are screaming outside the door. It's total chaos. Betty, let us in. It's us. Let us in. And... We're like, what? Who? Who is coming over here? And and they kept telling her like, open the fucking door, Betty. Like, open up. And they're telling her who they are, and she's like, she won't open the door. So then she tells my boyfriend, open the door. Before he can even unlock it and turn the knob, I guess they heard him unlock it, and they already are barging inside. Okay, so who was it? Two very angry and tall, brooding men. And they start asking me and my boyfriend who the fuck we were, why were we there? And I'm trying to explain the situation. I still don't understand what we what is going on. I still don't understand the severity of the situation at this point. So Jesse is struggling to try to figure out what the fuck is going on. And remember, she's really scared, probably high, and super confused. I'm just trying to talk to them and be like, but he told us to come over here and stay. And this is why. And we're just here to, you know, be moral support. And I turned around to be like, yeah, see, Betty. And Betty is fucking running out her back door climbing over her fucking fence and i'm like betty and i mean i'm like screaming to be clear betty is fleeing from the scene she vaulted over the fence and peaced the fuck out and jesse probably not fully computing what was happening was screaming for her my voice goes hoarse because i'm screaming at the top of my lungs betty betty like as loud as i can because i have never been so scared in my entire life as I was at that point because when I saw her leaving crawling out her back door climbing over her fence I knew right then like she had set us up and we're either going to get our asses beat or we're going to die honestly the idea that Betty was fleeing the scene when okay first of all so the guys who were banging on the door were calling Betty's name so they know her yeah. They come in angry and armed and then Betty vaults and leaves them. And it's like without explaining why they're there. So imagine trying to be like, Betty invited us. We were in the parking lot. It's like, no one's going to believe this is a crazy reason to be at yeah. someone's house. Insane. Yeah. You know, and it's like, what a disastrous nightmare. 
And just, uh, it's just so terrifying because then you're just stuck in the lion's den and you have no idea why you're there, what you're doing, how to get out and how somebody set you up. It's so scary. No, the, right. the first thing that you're going to do is that you're going to call for the person that invited you to that place. Be yeah. Like, Betty, where are you going? It's like, you're the reason why we're here. And if, if Betty's running, you know, you should have yeah. been running, but it's too late for you. But here's the thing. So Jesse said she realized they'd been set up. So now suddenly the dots are being connected for Jesse where it's like, it answers the question we said. It's like, why would someone be so nice? Why would someone give you pay for your food, pay for your drugs? Like, you know, it's sort of like, Oh, this isn't just too good to be true. This, there was a catch here. And that's, that's what we're looking at. I knew she had set us up, but I didn't know what for and why I just knew she set us up for something very bad and very wrong. (laughs) And it was not a good thing. It was not. I knew that. So who were these guys who had just busted inside this house? These two guys were the partners of her boyfriend. And I guess that they, what they were doing is they were sent to check up on the place every couple of days. These guys were angry and worse, they were armed. Jesse and Brad were understandably terrified. And Jesse is holding on to the hope that Betty, the girl who lured them into this house with the promise of drugs and food, that she would turn back around and straighten things out. Because we know that she knows these guys. They were calling Betty's name when they were banging on the door. I am screaming at the top of my lungs and these guys are getting like really mad. But I kind of get tunnel visioned on like her when I'm screaming, like just hoping and praying she's going to turn around and come back. And I don't really know what's going on behind me. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like just this intense, sharp pain on the side of my head. And then everything just goes black for a few seconds. Now, this is going from a verbal confrontation to a physical assault. And Jesse is hit with something and loses consciousness. But then she comes to. I come to and I'm like, what is like, I'm still out of it because I don't know where this pain came from. And I still don't understand what situation I'm in. And I come to, and both of these men have us, my boyfriend and I push up against the wall. The one guy had pistol with me because I was screaming so loud and making too much noise. And if I didn't stop screaming, he was going to do it again. And he had his arm on my chest and a gun in my face. And then the other guy had my boyfriend with his arm on his chest and a gun in his face. And I had never been in a situation like this at this point in my life. I had only seen stuff like this happen in movies. And I was still very young and naive and green in the drug world. So I'm sobbing, like ugly, crying, sobbing, freaking out, shaking, Like, knowing that I'm going to die. Like, I just know that I'm going to die. So, this is one of the most terrifying implications of the drug world. When you're dabbling in the illegal, there's no one you can call for help. And with the desperation and demand for drugs at an all-time high, to dealers, the drugs and money have become more important than people's lives. We've seen it portrayed in movies. The violence is casual. It's impersonal. And essentially, an implication of doing this kind of business. It's a risk for those who indulge in it. Okay, so back into this life or death situation Jesse and Brad found themselves in. And this man is yelling at me, like, stop 
screaming or I'm going to fucking hit you again. Who are you? Did you steal my shit? Did you take it? I'm like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't take anything. I didn't steal anything. The other dude is asking my boyfriend the same question. And they're getting really mad at me because I'm being really loud. Which, thinking about it now, with all the knowledge and wisdom I have and what I've been through, I understand why. Like, you don't want people making a lot of noise when you're doing stuff like this. And then finally, my boyfriend, like, looked at me and was like, just please, you need to calm down. They're going to hurt you if you don't. I finally became silent and just sat there. And I don't know if, like, when you, you're you crying before and you're trying to make yourself stop and, like, your your lip is still quivering and your chest is still like shaking and you're trying to not cry, but your body wants you to cry. That's what I was doing. And I was just trying to be as still and look as calm as possible. Finally, with me calmed down and and they kind of let us go from their grip, but they still have their guns pointed at us. And my boyfriend calmly tells them exactly why we were there everything that's went down. So Brad tells them that Betty had invited them there because she was concerned about the burglars. And Brad is telling them this whole story. And these guys were really hearing him out for the time being. And they start to ask questions about Betty. They ask us, they're like, well, did she have a lot of money on her? And we were like, well, yeah, I mean, it depends on what you think is a lot of money because $5,000 to some people is not a lot of money, but to people like us, it is. She is still gone at this point. Betty is still MIA, nowhere to be found. And so they are kind of really confused. They have these confused, like dumbfounded looks on their face because they don't really know what to make of the situation either. So they say at that point, well, we need to go upstairs to the office, which is the hallway and the door where the cameras are pointed. So they sit us down on the couch and tie our hands and our feet together so we can't run away because, you know, we're we're people that have stolen all their stuff. Horrifying. Jesse and Brad were pretty sure they were going to die. Because by this point, the sobering truth of what was going on had finally come into full focus. Betty had taken money from her boyfriend, and she had taken drugs, and she was setting Brad and Jesse up to take the fall for it, which is why she ran from the house. So after tying Jesse and Brad up, the men went up into Betty's drug dealer boyfriend's office and were gone for about 20 minutes. When you like feel like the end of your life is coming upon you, it felt like an eternity. It felt like they were gone for five hours. The two men did eventually come back downstairs. They had two very big train cases, and they were like, if we go and count this and it's wrong or it's off, we're coming back, and it won't be good. But they were more angry and more upset with saying that it wasn't just, like, calmly telling us that. Like, they were yelling that at us. This is terrifying because you know that Betty had stacks of cash with her. So, of course, there's going to be money missing. This was truly becoming a life-or-death situation. We waited like five minutes and how my boyfriend got his untied first and then he did mine because they were just like shoe, it seemed like shoelaces, but kind of like 
maybe boot laces, but they weren't like a super thick, like, um, like a zip tie or anything that would be impossible. So we got those undone and we're getting up to leave. And then uh, Betty came back. And get this, when Betty rolled back in, she had a completely casual demeanor. She came like walking back in, like everything was fine. She saw that we had been tied up and that we were leaving. And she was like, why are you leaving? Where are you going? She tried to stand in front of the door and like keep us from leaving. Oh, hell no. What is this chick doing? She weighed all of a hundred pounds, soaking wet, was five foot one. And my my boyfriend's not gonna put his hands on a woman. He just won't do that. And I had never gotten any sort of physical altercation in my life. But at this point, like I was in survival mode and I was not gonna die. Like with ever like all of the fear and the rage and the pissedness that I had just went into overdrive and I just shoved her as hard as I could out of the way. Like, so I pushed her and when I pushed her, she kind of like fell into the landing of her stairs. I did that. I grabbed my boyfriend's hand and like started running because this was the, this was survival. And I did not let go until we reached the car and we jumped Lord in there, like tires screeching, dust flying everywhere. So we zero Fs were given at this point. And so we got like a mile down the road and we, the guys coming back the other direction and they were driving like a hundred miles an hour. Um, but we went straight to his parents' house. Okay. So What's so fascinating to me about this is that like when Betty rolls back in, she sees they're trying to leave, that they're untying themselves and she tries to stop them. So my thoughts are that she's probably going to start being like pretending that like, Hey guys, they're leaving, like get them. It's them. Like that's what I get from this, which is fucking insane and scary. And it's like they finally escaped the house and they jet out of there and what a fucking nightmare. This whole thing is terrifying. It's, it's so scary. Jesus. Dude, so scary. Having guns pointing in your face tied up, like not knowing what's going to happen to you is so traumatizing. It took me a long time to process and comprehend the situation that we had just been in. It's like, because we get to his parents' house and, you know, his mom's sitting on the couch watching TV and his niece is there and she's playing with dogs. But I'm thinking I literally just walked away from my, a gun being pointed in my face and almost dying. And I just walk in from the situation where I almost died. It's just so weird. um, I don't know how to explain it. Jesse and Brad survived their ordeal. But a lot of questions remained, like, why did Betty do this at all? What was her ultimate plan? Jesse was able to find out through the grapevine because it turned out that Brad's sister was friends with Betty's sister. And here's what they learned. She was afraid of her boyfriend. That's why she concocted this whole plan, because she didn't want to deal with his wrath. So she concocted this whole plan for us to deal with it. So you might be wondering, why did Betty keep trying to get Brad by himself? 
in trying to get Jesse to leave. I found out the real reason was, uh, so she had set her sights on my boyfriend when she saw him at Walmart and like hatched the whole plan. She wanted him to have sex with her consensually, but she was going to tell the men that came that he broke in and raped her and took the money and the drugs. That was her plan. She, to me, makes me think of like a black widow. We were her mates for that night and then she was gonna just eat us, basically after that, but she wined and dined us and set us up to serve us to the wolves. So here's a question. What do we think of Betty? Is she evil? Or is this an implication being so closely intertwined in the drug world? I think it's a little bit of both. I think she is a little bit evil. And I mean, I have, maybe she is a psychopath. Um, she has a lot of the classic signs of a psychopath, but I don't know that and I'm not a therapist, so I can't diagnose her. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be the defining incident that motivated Jesse and Brad to overcome their addictions. What ended up leading to us getting clean is we had switched from like pain pills to heroin. And this is when fentanyl started getting really, really big. And the last batch that we got we both OD'd. Luckily, we were Narcan, but for me, like, I was done. It had been building up to this. Our lives were literally in shambles. You know, our families were done with us. We had no where we not, we had nowhere to live. We were living in our car. We, you know, would go days without eating because money was more important for drugs than it was for food. My boyfriend, his brother, committed suicide, and he also had addiction, was in active addiction, and he committed suicide. And it just was a culmination of all of those things and thinking, I don't want to be like this for the rest of my life. I don't want to die. According to the CDC, drug overdose deaths reached a record high of 93,331 in 2020. And while these estimates are not final, this is more than 20,000 deaths above the previous high in 2019 and the largest single-year percentage increase on record since 1999. And Jesse's story is a perfect example demonstrating the other dangers of the drug world, which is one that is riddled with violence. I might die from an OD, but... There's the other aspect, too, of there's a very real possibility of violence. And it might be somebody that you never think would do something to you. But when you're in active addiction and your frontal lobe is not working and your reasoning is not working, it's like your your super ego and your ego are not working and you're just operating in full id, caveman mode. People will do things that they never thought that they would do. I fully take responsibility for putting myself in that situation because you get to that point where you will do anything, anything so you do not have to be dope sick. And I'm not trying to discount overdoses at all. I am not because they're awful. But violence and psychopathy go hand in hand with the drug world. 
I think this idea that like psychopathy and the drug world goes hand in hand, I think that's poignant because I do think when, um, and I don't know if it's psychopathy, I think just like the ugliness of human nature, it, it reveals itself in moments of desperation. And I think if you've never been addicted to a drug, I think that desp- to, to, to a drug that causes such severe symptoms of withdrawal, I think it's really hard to understand the desperation and understand sort of the dangers associated with this. Cause like it's this primal, like survival yeah. shit kicks in. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the users and the users are, are just trying to survive. And then you have these perpetrators that are out there, these villains that know that these people are desperate and they're able to get something from them because these people don't want to go out and get real fucking jobs. And that's what they do. And they'll, they'll do it with either taking a woman that's their girlfriend and then saying, you're going to have the trick in order to get the, you know, it's just like, it's everything that all of these guys do, whether it's robbing, stealing, it's all of this stuff. Yeah. And I think something worth noting too, Jesse's made a couple of references is like, your brain chemistry changes parts of your brain, your, you know, your logic, your impulse control, like everything's out of whack. And suddenly that becomes your main focus. It's over, over empathy, over, over, you know, just like basic shit that seems so, you know, second nature to people who aren't on like addicted to anything. Um, drugs become before anything else. And that's sort of the danger. And that's this desperation we see. It's very primal. It's survival mode. It's the it, the best way to 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 explain it to somebody that hasn't been there. It's just like imagine you're gasping for air and you can't get any air. What are you? Go- What's the number one thing that you're thinking about? It's that I need more air. That's your what's brain, going on, right? Because your brain does think it's going to die without it. Your mm-hmm. brain thinks it's going to die without it. That's how addicted you are. So yep. then you make decisions like is life or death. And of course, if your life is on the line you're always going to choose the drugs and you're going to choose getting it over being a good person over your responsibilities as like a parent. Like this is just an example. It just, it goes on and on and on. And we're so grateful to Jesse for sharing this story because it's an amazing demonstration of, of the kind of hold it has on you. Yeah. And Jesse, thank you so much for being our first degree connection for this story. And if anybody is out there that has a story to tell, even if you've just been, you know, holding on to it. Don't know if you should reach out. You should reach out to us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. No story is too small to tell. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen. Join our Facebook page by searching the first degree up in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close happy potato day happy cranky curmudgeon jensen day <laughs> happy <laughs> sylvia plath jensen. day Ooh, sylvia plath tell me that daddy poem again billy <laughs> oh my god no shout out to jared monaco for scoring and creating original music for the first degree producing by caitlin cleveland producing and research Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are the CDC, the American Medical Association, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.